Hello and welcome to the review for the 29th of November 2022. I'm your host as always, Graham Mackay, and I am joined... I, I, I said ying to my yang the last time, so I'm going to say yes, the iron. Did. I'm going to say the iron to my brew. If we're going to say your iron to my Norton there, and I was like, where's this going? Uh, so that's, that's my, that that's, must be Scandi chat that I don't get. <laughs> talking talk about Scandi chat, um, not even talking about Scandi chat. How's, is, is your mum still there? My mother has vacated the building. Uh, she I, has. I had a, a two-hour drive from Munich, uh, an hour pit stop, a two-hour drive to Frankfurt, and a two-hour drive back from Frankfurt. So that was fun on my my aging knees, doing yeah. the the clutch control and that. So you 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 have too old. Your knees are too old to be on the autobahn. Is that, is that what you say? For six hours in the truck, yeah, basically, basically. No, but it was it was a it was a fun a fun time was had by all. Apart uh, from you, yeah, I never said that. Uh, but no, it was it was. She had a great time. We, we went to Munich. We went to every single Christmas market that nice. exists. Is that and because you wanted glowvine? A lot of glowvine. I enjoyed quantities. The first time I had glowvine, didn't enjoy it. I'm now a fan of glowvine. I think because I've started drinking like flavored tea, so now the idea of like hot sweet stuff is not that repellent to me. What happened to you, man? Yeah, you were in the. You know, barhead CSE. Now you're drinking flavored tea. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, peach flavored tea as well. I think I'm <laughs> even worse. But how, how is how I is your call week that growth? Been? I think <laughs> call that growth. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. I would say. How has your week been? It, how has my week? It's only Monday. It's been short, man. The week uh, from the last oh, review. <laughs> and it's, I, I think it's been good. I think it's just. I kind of lose track of all the days. Um, to be honest with you, no, it's, it's been good. I've been watching a little bit of the World Cup. We'll get to that. Um, Max had his last game of the season uh, yesterday. 9 a.m. start. How did he go on? Yeah, one two, uh, lost two. Had an amazing um, goal line um, clearance where he then, at the same time as saving a goal, clattered into his own teammate. Mm-hmm. who fell like a ton of bricks, started crying. So they went down to three men. But to be honest, I've never been so proud in my life. So he just stood there and went, huh. you know, so. It's just suddenly Christopher Julian of uh, youth football in the <laughs> It's not a bad comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so is there any positions at that age or is it just a free-for-all? Oh, it's chaos. Um, no, it's, it's it's so it's four v four. There's no goalkeepers. Um, the you know the, this is not really an area for Reese either. You're trying to just kind of herd them into a certain position. Um, some parents eh, still a bit too keen um, on the old uh, instructions and stuff like that. But um, he's he's dead excited about when it. I think it's maybe next year, or the year after you actually get a goalkeeper. Um, so obviously he wants to, you know, follow in the footsteps of his old man and uh, be a goalkeeper. So. Have you have you uttered at any point about him getting into the half space? No, I'm 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 a very um, what's the word? Um, standoffish, hands off. Yeah, hands off. yeah it's you know, yeah, I don't even shout. I just I just stand there like a scout. You just I note just... it down for a PowerPoint later on that evening. <laughs> um. So yeah, no, I mean, I always, uh, I, don't, I don't think some of the parents are coaching so far away, even at that age. But um, but but his club is is, is actually really good for it. I, I think they're good. Uh, some of the opponents, uh, 
maybe less so. But there you go. It's, it's a bit of fun. Good, good people watching. Youth football in there, sure. You can't beat it. <laughs> so we we spoke about it on the agenda. Uh, well, the guys have spoken about for the last couple of weeks about transfers out of Scotland and. I kind of have a feeling that we're maybe missing the boat on certain players. And Alan has spoken about how where players like Ramsey have come in and once they've played about 20 games for Aberdeen, they're already out of our price range. But what I wanted to ask you, Christian, is about what we should be doing. Is there anything, first of all, we should be doing before someone like Ramsey gets into the first team. Is is there a case of we should be aware of this player and know anything about them? Is it too hard to tell at that age? Thinking about someone like Calvin Ramsey, he made his debut in the league at sixteen. He was a he was capped for the under sixteens and under seventeens by then for Scotland. And he was playing for the under twenty one Aberdeen team at sixteen quite often. Players like Doig had 62 games for Hibs by the age of 19. He left for 3 million, which could be argued to be within a price range when we're looking at the uh, boy, for, the office worker from Canada. Erin <laughs> uh, Hickey had played 24 games in one season and left for 1.5 million. So whereas someone like Ramsey after 20 games had played, had probably put himself in a window that was not really available for us unless we really, really wanted to push the boat out. And even then, competing with Liverpool would have probably been a, a hard task. Is there anything to say for Doig and Hickey that we should have been able to move for them or should have should have actually moved for them? Was it a case of saying that we wouldn't have been able to offer them first-team football? And is there anything that Celtic should be doing before these players get to the first-team level that we should be recognising them? Or do you think it's impossible to recognise at such an early age because you don't want to be putting that kind of investment into to players that are just kind of like... They're almost in the periphery. They're not real footballers at that stage, if you know what I mean. What do you, what do you make of the kind of the way that Celtic go about scouting their own market, and the way we have lost out on these fullbacks? I mean, it's funny they're all fullbacks that have gone on to obviously forge careers for themselves abroad. Liverpool brain abroad in this circumstance. I mean, if, if you have one more question to add to that, I think it's only about seven or eight in there. If there's any, I like to keep being a toys question. <laughs> So it's always a few things. I think it's probably a good thing as a photo experiment to like look away from for the names because I think once you start getting into names like Hickey, Ramsey, Doig, you go there's an easy to find reasons. Well, oh well, you know, it's, it didn't show that you can't because Celtics got players in that position who wouldn't play and so on. So I, I think we're talking about you know this hypothetical uh, Scottish talent regen. That's coming true. So, so the scouting side, I, I, I do expect Celtic to have. I bloody hope so. The network and the kind of scouting structure that you know they're they're all over. You know anybody who's coming through. First of all, you know the youth national teams. You know Scottish football, Scottish football is not big. If, there, if there's somebody good around, you know there'll be scouts. There'll be. Just essentially the the network you have in Scottish football, you you'll know about that. So I, I don't think it's an issue in saying, you know, somebody. I, I said I shouldn't mention name, but someone like Ramsey, like coming through. I presume I, I can't imagine anything else. The Celtic wouldn't be aware of that. So then you kind of go into the more the other aspects of it for me. Then is one, what is the 
club's kind of attitude to Scottish talent in terms of, and this is just like an open question, I don't know. Do they think somebody who's coming through the Aberdeen or Hibs Academy is of a lesser standard than the Celtic Academy, for example? You know, it's I, I don't I don't expect there to be any sort of snobbery around that, but I guess that's you know, are they open to bringing in somebody at that age? And I think, well, for me, that kind of leads, and maybe that's more a fan thing that that drives that saying of. You know, it's just okay. He's got a few games at right back for Aberdeen. You know, it's it's, it's that is it's that good enough for Celtic? But it comes back to the main thing for me, and it comes back to um, what we end up talking about every single time in that buzzword, which is the pathway, and also another buzzword: the structure of the club and the overall. You know the the view of the club, the, the overarching goals, and everything that's put in place, and how much focus should be on youth development. Because the first one is, is if if you want to bring in a region like Ramsey into Celtic once it's just starting to break through, what what can you offer him that Aberdeen can't? And it, it's it's weird that we have to pose that question because for someone like Calvin Ramsey who Come, I, I know I just said I shouldn't mention name, but unless you count this, he comes through at sixteen, and he's he's knocking on the door um, of the first team in Aberdeen. At this moment, what would he gain from coming to Celtic right now? Because highly likely wouldn't play, you know, having just broken through in uh, Aberdeen. Does he have? A better training facilities, uh, you know, a, a training environment. I, d- I don't know if he does, to be honest. You know, I mean, if he trains with the same group of players as Celtic, would that be a much different scenario? You know, okay, if he trains with the first team, maybe, maybe that's a path you have to sell a bit more. And also, what's his path for Celtic? You know, is he going to get minutes before he's kind of untested? As well, so I, I think a player like Ramsey that breaks through at the moment, and you can add to the Doig and, and Hickey as well, because the threshold to get into the those teams and those are you know Hibs, Hearts, and Aberdeen. You're talking about you know the teams that should be number three to five in Scotland, and these towns as well. I can stay here, I can get incredible matching because I can play senior football so early. And you know the standard of training and the facilities and anything like that isn't you know that's you know I'll stay home maybe I'll stay closer to home it's you know fits better. So you go, even if Celtic went out and tried to buy them early, would they go? You know we had the I think it's, on the top of my head I can't remember his name like the boy Samarin who Celtic has been trying and persuading to come to Celtic at sixteen and he's like it won't cost much but. Doesn't look like he's coming, and you can you can kind of understand why in the situation Celtic is now that they, I don't think they're able to sell a top development for really talented youngsters who's sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years of age, which is a bit worrying. And there's that that discussion is probably a whole pod in itself or a series of pods 
But I think that's where it is at the moment. And the other flip side of that, Graham, is that what's almost just as concerning is that the youngsters that are in Celtics Academy, the really good ones, have been leaving. You know, there's, there's the famous ones like, you know, Doak and stuff like that. But it, it doesn't seem to be that, you know, buzzword pathway. You know, the, the one at the moment that we kind of started talking about on some pods is Rokovata, you know, is... Why is he not getting minutes? We talked about this before as well. So, uh, uh, you know, we, we can talk about, oh, should Celtic go in and buy Ramsey for two, three million, for Doiga two, three million, Hickey two, three million a bit before. The question more for me just now, the more pertinent question is, would they come? Mm-hmm. So what, so based, so just say that Calvin Ramsey has just bust through Aberdeen, 16-year-old, playing right back for them in some games. And we have the current situation where we have Juranovic, Poised to leave, apparently. Uh, we've got Ralston uh, behind them. What would Celtic need to do? Because obviously we're, we can't be fit, we can't be saying Calvin Rams and making him the number two as, as a 16-year-old. That, that's probably not something Celtic are going to do. So what would be the package that Celtic would put together to say to Calvin Ramsey, well, you've got two guys ahead of you currently, but this is what we're going to do to ensure that you progress your career? Well, I think if you you believe that player has the required talent, but why can't you make him the number two at 16? So, but that comes back to what Celtic wants to do in terms of the overall vision for the club. I think a lot of fans would be uneasy about having a 16, 17-year-old as, as the number two. I think the club hierarchy as in, in the board would hmm, maybe feel a bit uneasy because that's so much is still centered about getting a, a point ahead of Rangers. So if your ultimate goal is to get a point ahead of Rangers every year, I think a lot of them falls into kind of safety first thing and they don't want to do that. But if you have a really tough, look at Calvin Ramsey who, who came in at that age and once he started playing Aberdeen, he was suddenly one of the best right backs in the country straight away. I know Kieran Tierney is, is the obvious example. Like he, he got a chance and then suddenly he was number one and he was just a huge talent. So I, uh, if you feel a Scottish player is at 15, 16, Calvin Ramsey, Ben Doak, they're extremely talented and you can either bring them in or they're on your books. I think you have to make a choice as a club to go, actually, you don't need a squad player to be brought in. This is exactly the kind of moment where you have to, you know, I guess, trust that process and give those minutes to this really, really talented 16, 17-year-old. You can sort of sink or swim. Look, they might sink, but I think you'll find that out pretty quickly. And I think it's the case of if, if you bring in, if you have a, your standard league game at home against Motherwell, putting one 16 slash 17 year old in is for me not a big risk when your team is so much better anyway. It's for me, it's a perfect platform instead of putting in, you know, your 25 year old um, backup right back who's. He's okay, but he's, he's, you never want him as a starter. You know, so I think it's, it's, it comes back to what is your vision for the club and what are you willing to kind of actually, you know, not maybe risk, but if you stick to that vision, if you have that process and you have that structure, I think you're buying the really talented 16-year-old. And if, the, if for example, as Ramsey, if that was the point of time where, you know, in six months here, we're going to need somebody as a second choice, go and buy him. Let them be a second choice. Mm-hmm. And 
So one thing that's often mentioned is that, and I, I admit that I never, did never caught my eye was when Doig and Hickey were playing against Celtic in particular. They didn't, there wasn't anything that really stood out for me. And a lot of fans will say, well, they'd never really done it when they were here. This is, and Gower alluded to it on, on the agenda that um, Doig must have progressed quite a lot in the last six months at Verona, which I don't know. I, I feel as if that's quite wishful thinking that that's what's happened more. I feel as if we've maybe missed the boat a little bit. Is there anything? Obviously, this, that this, the Celtic kind of uh, professionals that w- watching the players would be aware of just the capabilities of these players. Is, is it surprising to you that Celtic instead made a kind of risky move for about the same amount of money for an Argentinian left-back coming from South America than they would have spent on Josh Doig? They knew they'd watched 60-odd games for Hibs in the league. A 20-year-old Scottish obviously fulfills um, the kind of homegrown thing that we need. Is it a case of... Celtic maybe, as you were alluding to earlier, maybe having some kind of disrespect about talent that's not with them because they maybe feel as if they already should have the best of the Scottish talent coming through their youth ranks. Or is it just a case of Bernabe being a, a profile of player that fits Angie's system a bit better than Doig would have? I think we're probably all guilty of that. You rather want to add young Argentinian left back then. One from Edinburgh, don't we? Yeah, really? Edinburgh. yeah. Um, but the, I mean, first of all, I I do think if you're playing this player senior football at you know sixteen, seventeen, even if you're not dominating against Celtic, you you're obviously of a certain level. And I think okay, you, I'm sure he's developed a lot in Italy anyway, but I don't think you develop that much unless you're actually really good in the first place. You know, you don't, you don't put anybody in there and do that. I think when you saw, you know, when Leo Yelder went up to Ross County when he was 17, and he plays pretty much every game, and yeah, he's got a couple of dodgy moments in, in some other games, but overall, I think at the time we say, like, there was hardly any 17-year-olds in the whole of Europe that had as many, you know, tough flight minutes as him, and there was like a few, like Stuart Bellingham and, and stuff like that. And just it can be an easy as that. See, if you're 17 year olds and you play top flight football almost anywhere in Europe, almost anywhere, like alarm bells should be ringing in your scouting departments all over the place because it, it, it's very often as simple as that. That if not just that they get, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes here and there, but if they're actually playing game after game and getting lots of game time at that age, look, they're ready. And they're already at a really early stage in their development, and that should be taken seriously. So I think players like Hickey and, and Doig and Ramsey that gets that minutes at that time, even if they're not pulling up trees, if they're fairly consistent performance at that point, you go, you know, they have so many, they got two, three years even before they're, you know, out of their teens, you know, with the right environment and the right um, coaching, they will develop. And as I said, yeah, they might have the old bad game, but I think again, if if you put down, okay, that's the club's philosophy. We're going to do that. We're just going to give those minutes. You do that, and so, but you can't. Then there has to be a part of the manager's remit 
to do that. And it's, you know, it's not really up to Ange. If you give Carte Blanche to Ange, who do you want to score through your backup? I kind of get that he doesn't want a 16, 17, 18-year-old from Scotland that is supposed to be, you know, it could be really, really good. But if that is the stare and the parameters you give the manager you you hire, then they'll then they'll do that. And I know, so, so I don't. I think Celtic should still go up and, and buy really exciting twenty twenty one year olds from across the world. To be honest, and I, I, but again, I think even if if you have somebody at seventeen that's coming through at Scotland and playing lots of games, you kind of go, you know, it's not many seventeen year olds do that anywhere in Europe all the world so it's yeah you know if you then have a pathway a structure uh, something to offer them to as attractive as Celtics I think that's the second part of the package yeah for me you I'd, I'd invest more money and I'd invest more you know of the club's minutes and, and, and kind of invest in that theory I guess that that's the right way to do it just, just finishing on that kind of that kind of aspect, that our, our central midfield is uh, like blonde on blonde by Bob Dylan, a big baggy monster. Uh, we we have our first three, which I think is regarded by everyone as being uh, Cal McGregor, Matt O'Reilly, and uh, Hitati. After that, we have four. So with Turnbull, Moy, McCarthy, and Abogard and Idiguchi five, we have five full. Full professional senior pro footballers in the kind of the, the second choice, the squad position. Ideally, with the way that we want to see a football club run, you have your first three for our three positions. Where do you start with the seventeen-year-olds and the eighteen-year-olds? If you are signing that guy from St. Mern, what what position would you say to him? This is where you're going to be. Is he going to be the first off the bench, the second off the bench, the third? How many senior pros do you put in front of a kid like that as the squad players, if that makes sense? No. I think it depends how good he is. I mean, first of all, you know, he has to be of a quality that you he can be one of the six. And I think that's where the, a lot of these issues are because people, to make that assessment, whether he's good or not, I think that comes into what we've been talking about. Okay, they're Scottish. Um, they're not at, at Celtic. You know, they're... So it's, you know, they're only playing for a separate So So you have to have the, the scouting and the, and the evaluation of that. But... You know, I know this is just fullbacks there, but if you look at Ramsey, Doig, Hickey, it's no, no, Chris, not all three of them at this point. At you know, just, it's slightly different ages of them. I think they're all good enough for Celtic squad, right, right now. It's you know, you know, I think Ramsey's is, is Ramsey. Would you rather have Calvin Ramsey right now as a backup fullback than, than Tony Elson? I'll be honest, I, I think I would. I think I would have Aaron Hickey as well. And on the left side, you know, if okay, so it's a bit before this season, would I have a Josh Stoig as a as a backup um to Greg Taylor instead of say, you know, Liam Scales and probably Adam Montgomery as well. I probably would. So so we're all still six. I think if you know it's, what clubs our Celtic, you know, when we start talking about this, what 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 kind of clubs can we point to? 
that Celtics should try and at least do some of those. It's the obvious one. It's like Ajax, Salzburg, and a couple of the Portuguese clubs as well. But I think Salzburg and, and Ajax are, are good examples because their leagues, I don't think the Austrian league is much better at all than, than the Scottish one, maybe a little bit. The Dutch one, yeah, a little bit, but it's not a huge gap for me, I think, you know, um, especially thinking about compared to Celtic. And they're, you know, the clubs that are expected to win every year, to win the league every year, but they still produce talents, you know, their own talents and the talents to buy in. I think it's a large part because they have an excellent scouting environment, an excellent academy, especially with Ajax. But Celtic, with their resources, can have both. So it sounds very simple, but if if you can identify the best talents, including Scottish ones, early enough, and you have a philosophy of, of giving them the chance, and then the whole, I think it also comes back into the whole structure of the club has a specific way of playing through youth and it buys players that fit into that system. Because since that's the, probably the thing we haven't talked about here is Callum Ramsey could be an amazing 16-year-old right back, but if he doesn't fit into the Andrews system, for example, or Celtic system, you don't go and buy him. But if you find a, a 16, 17-year-old Scottish fullback or central midfielder that actually plays, his playing style fits perfectly into what Celtic wants to do as a club. Well, so that's an easier buy, isn't it? So I think, and I'm kind of avoiding your question, but I think if if you don't have, say, in a fullback position or the central midfield position or a winger position, because you're talking about six players in midfield, four in fullback, four to five on the wing, but if you don't have one player in each one of those kind of areas, that is a young talent. And I define young as like, say, 18, 19, 20 at the oldest, to fight for one of the positions, and I was like, I don't know if you're doing it correctly. But well, you, you you at least not have a structure that's correct in terms of being able to develop your own players, like Ajax and Salzburg have. So what you're saying is keep the Gooch, keep Moy, get rid of the rest, and sign a St. Martin player. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. I, one, one thing that always comes up, and I don't know if this is just anecdotal, I don't know how, I mean, I obviously was nowhere near the involvement of this, but the idea that KT was not seen as anything special before he made the kind of first-team appearance by necessity for Ronnie Dyler, how much, how much do you believe that? Do you believe that, for example, Celtic scouts would have been watching the youth teams against players like Calvin Ramsey and thought, hmm, he's probably not that special. And it wasn't until the breakthrough that that was seen as uh, has been folly. Well, I think the unknown is that you do not know how these players are going to handle that step up, and not just to senior football, as senior football, first of all, but also to Celtic before you try it, <laughs> you know. And, and but that is often, you look at KT and he's, you know, he's not. I don't. I think he's ever been a flashy fullback. I mean, he's. I remember watching him, and we did some of the kind of tactical things on them really early on. Was that his playing style? It's just for me. It's really. It's always been simple, efficient, but it's been so efficient 
you know, he's a very straightforward football in a lot of places, but he does it so, so well. Be it tackling, be it passing, be it movement, be it, you know, crossing. It's just a simplicity and effectiveness to it. So, yeah, I mean, so it's it's not flashy because it's not super fast or he's not super technical, but he's 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 got a specific playing style that you know, probably would fit really well in, a, in an Anchester, for example. So I think it's a lot to do with it. Do you have, again, a scouting department, a youth coaching kind of network within inside the club that is perfectly aligned on the type of player you should be producing? And that's, you know, we'll speculate if it is that or not, but it, I think it is a case of you just have to trust that process before that. And then if you have a young player and you think he fits the system, he's a good quality, you just have to let them play because it's, it's not going to happen otherwise. Kind of like the, the Frozen song, but no, I don't care. <laughs> Which one, Frozen one or two? I, I don't know. Okay. Let's let's stay in domestic issues before we go, Mister Worldwide, like Pitbull, um, Jordan Campbell, everyone's favorite tweeter. Uh, it's <laughs> Jordan Campbell and Elon Musk for me, my my favorite tweeters. Uh, he he tweeted today about Billball. Billball is coming home, and I I, I did almost vomit in my mouth there. Uh, and he said this is how he made the four three two one second nature at Rangers colon. Human tactics board walkthroughs, blue fence up to hide work, mm. picking pressing victims, diagrams in the changing rooms. I'm not sure if it's like pentagrams or like, but whatever. And same phrases used in video sessions. What? So Mick Beale, as we like to call him nowadays, yes. apparently, and Dominic Ball has come out today saying that. Um, um, Mick Beale should put Lee Wallace on the backroom staff. Yes. Maybe to maybe to grass if anyone's eating like chips or something like that. So. Somebody's looking over those blue fences. Yeah, That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael Beale, when he was at Rangers, obviously he was having like online arguments with people about tactics and stuff like that. He had his own blog. He, he was seen as the brains behind uh, Stephen Gerrard. You you revealed on podcast the other day was it the weekend update that he. QPR should technically be in about 15th or 16th based on X points. What do you think? So he's taking his first training session today. What is going to be the, the what is going to be the kind of tactical change that we're going to see from Van Bronckhurst team to uh, a Michael Beale team? What are they going to try and do to kind of stop Ange Ball? And does he have the players in the squad that he had under? The Gerard reign to fulfill the kind of football that he wants to play, given that the, the players that are still there are aging, some of them are completely out of form, and some of them clearly want to be elsewhere. What do you think Beale's going to try and, this is our, this is more questions than the last time I asked a lot yeah. of questions. What do you think Beale's kind of uh, first moves are going to be as a Rangers manager, and is it going to be effective against Ange? So, yeah, I mean, I think it was just said also a week ago, there is like Chris Davis. Taking over after the one of this. And it's part of me goes, it's almost like, oh, I remember that last time he won the league. The guy, the other guy, yeah, we'll bring him in. And it's, it, you can also see he's been, he's been angling for this job. And again, it's, it's a difficult one 
to kind of predict how it'll turn out. I mean, it's an interesting one in terms of that of the backroom there because I mean they're all leaving, I think, and you do get kind of get a sense of feeling where at least Gerard had the, had the personality, I guess, to kind of just bring in his own guys because he was Steven Gerrard in big lights. You do want to have, uh, sorry, Mick, Mick Beal is, is going to go that way. If, if he's going to go staunch, you know, if and, or if he's going to bring, you know, because the people he's been working with was obviously with Gerard at, at Aston Villa. Does he, does he go and bring some of those back, you know, um, and all the points? So that's, I think the backroom staff do have, for at least some managers have a, a lot of say and a lot of impact on this. But how is it going to do? Well, someone that described, you know, have, I think mentioned this before, Michael Beale had this, one of his most famous blogs, it's like how you should play with 10 men, you know, how you know how you have to then, what you have to do with the space, like you shouldn't actually leave just one person uh, on top because, you know, it's, it's counterproductive and stuff like that. And somebody said, like, well, when is just that? On the dryer and on the bill was essentially playing with ten men. You know the the concept of playing with ten men, what you have to do, but you actually have eleven, right? And, and I think there was a lot in that. Whereas domestically against most teams, obviously, if if you have such better players and better resources, yeah, often you'll find a way to win anyway. But maybe, but it's just how do you translate that? How do you? How do you create kind of something sustainable to to blow opponents away domestically, but then at the same time, how do you line up in the derbies? How do you line up in Europe? And I think what the hallmarks of, of Gerard and Bale in, in Europe was very much, you know, is that kind of <laughs> it, uh, you know that came out. Uh, you know, there's this picture in the locker room uh, in Rangers after one of the game saying, you know, and there was these two triangles. You know, one the right way and one inverted, like either side of the of the halfway line. And one said, you know, the top one said, "Control the space." And the other one said, "Control the ball." You know, and it's and it was very much about protecting your central areas. That was remember watching some of the Rangers games in Europe from like a scouting analysis point of view, and it was pretty. The one thing you you, you saw with it was how narrow. They were, and it was actually us this kind of like four three two one formation where you had your striker and then you the two wide attackers behind them, but they would kind of form quite a narrow triangle to really just protect the center circle space, so you didn't want the opposition to get the ball in like around the center circle, and if the ball went wide, say all the way out. It wasn't really the wingers that ran out, you know. Sometimes, depending on where, but it was very often the midfield tree that would move all the way over to support. You know, usually, like the wider central midfield would come all the way out, but those midfield tree would stay really, really, really narrow and really compact together. So, and then the fullback might push up as Rangers fullback. So it was all about having a lot of people in the middle of the pitch defensively, because then you deny the opposition that space. And obviously, if you have a lot of, you know, that came back to like win the ball in the middle. If you won the ball 
in the middle because you your midfield tree was always very narrow there and you had short distance to each other so theoretically you should be able to you know win the ball but if you did win the ball because your strikers your striker in your wide forward was also often quite narrow at that point you'd have a really good base to um counter attack from because you'd have lots of people centrally and shortness. So, so that's essentially it. I don't think that, that's essentially what we saw from them. And that's when they were the most effective. You know, they wouldn't let you play through the middle. But when you did, they had lots of players to, to steal the ball off you and counter quickly. And, you know, I think a lot of the philosophy was based around that. And I still don't know domestically how well that will translate. You know, before we get to like the Darvis and stuff like that. Because the, <laughs> I think the COVID season is, and I know we as Celtic fans, you know, we like to blame a lot of things around that, but this is, is a really weird season. I prefer Both, just to blame the lightning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to get to that as well. Because the way kind of Celtic, the recruitment and the way they set up and everything was obviously, it's really not good. But you do come to a point where if Celtic win the New Year's Eve game, Oh, it's New Year's Day. I just can't remember the moment. But, and to be honest, I think they produced one of their better first halves the whole season. They, they could have easily won. Like, it would have been four points. And I think, and okay, then they, then you have the whole bloody Dubai thing and everything. And, you know, it's it's lost after that based on that game as well. But, but something as simple as even not losing that game and not going to bloody Dubai in a bloody pandemic. You, you would have at least tested that kind of, even would have hopeless Celtic War at the point, you would have tested Rangers' ability to kind of keep winning at that point and keep beating the domestic opponents. Because I think, I think, as I said, Bale's issues, I think is the same as Van Broker's. It's not a great squad. I think there's, and okay, I, I think he'll probably have them a bit, like, like if you look at the Derby, like the last derby, which I think you know, Van Broker's got, he just got it totally wrong. I think it's just like Rangers had the ball most, and they they kind of tried to kind of ended up playing kind of some tried to play possession football against the Celtic team, and it's just they weren't set up for it. So I think Bale will have them probably sitting a bit deeper, controlling the the space in the middle a lot more. But then you go back to the the last three derbies of last season, and I mean Celtic struggled. I think you can honestly say Van Brokers had them set up in a way that, you know, Celtic did struggle in those three games. They won one, they lost one, they drew one, but Celtic weren't great in any of them and, and they, they kind of got Celtic a little bit out of their rhythm. So so the derby, you know, it almost came as a surprise to me how what I didn't understand what Van Brokers was trying to do in the derby, but I don't think Bale is going to try and do anything. It's going to be more of the same. Of what from brokers did last season, and I think we're going to be more of the same with the issues around that. Is that I think they'll be compact, they'll be narrow. I think they'll be tough to beat in the derbies on the bail. But overall, they were, you know, in the last three derbies last season, they were tough to beat as well. And I, and again, are they going to be able to blow other teams in Scotland away with the squad they have? And, and I don't know what bail can do offensively to to that sense and that kind of possession-based football and it, it's yet to be seen. So I, as I said last time, I don't know if this is a great sacking by Rangers and I don't know if it's a great hire either. So 
when you consider like so when Gerard came in, he he slowed Rogers down quite a bit when it came to the Derby games. Rogers found it increasingly difficult to kind of deal with the way that Gerard was setting up against him. And we we haven't really seen Ange against that kind of B.O. Gerard team so much. I mean, obviously there was a fleeting uh, uh, period where they were up against each other, but we were in kind of deep injury crisis at the times and it wasn't really, uh, uh, I think, Gerard had his eyes elsewhere as well. Is there something about the way that Ange plays that is diff- that differs from the way that Brendan Rogers plays that gives us an advantage over playing against that system? And also, is there anything about the way that that Gerard Beale system worked that is going to be negatively affected by the fact that they don't have a rebo anymore and Jack, Davis, Arfield are all older than they were before? And that is basically the kind of their midfield. I mean, they've obviously yeah. got camera as well, but I mean, anyway, it's you've lost a couple of your best players, but then you have the same team that was there as well. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of that team were based on, I think, from the front of list, like Morelos, Kent, you know, it's that kind of an Arebo that the running they did from the front, and you know, they have an explosivity, all three of them, but they were they're well drilled defensively as well. And I think, you know. One of them is not there, the other two is out the door. I think that midfield is older, you know, <laughs> simply as, as well. And I think Ange's, Ange's system is also based a lot on, on, on the counter-pressing and how intense that and in, in, in terms of, you know, in, in how those kind of the faces of the players is done. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, I think Ange's team compared to Rush's team, Ange has so much, I think, different movements. So, I mean, there was elements of that kind of changing of roles within uh, Ange's system as well. You know, Sinclair and Tierney on one side and so on and kind of having a lot of focus down the left-hand side and maybe switching it quickly to the right-hand side, which is quite open to, to you know, to Paddy Roberts or James Forrest. So, so there's, there's elements of it, but I think it's, Ange is just out on, on hyper speed, you know, um, and all those kind of movements and all those overloads in certain areas and, and, and the continuing use of that at all times, it just makes it, if you do sit and try to be an arrow, it's difficult to keep up for 90 minutes. Uh, where I think Bale would probably look at is what is Celtic's kind of rest defense for that? What is the kind of avenues for counterattacks, which I think we talked about this before in this thing. So whereas I think Celtic defensively get away with it a little bit in terms of how they structure where they put their attacking players when they attack or specifically your midfield players. You know, we talked about Matt O'Reilly like doing big runs when he's in the six behind the low, behind the opposition defense and stuff like that. And that's that's the stuff I think Michael be able to look at is like trying to exploit. So, but I think, as I said, like, you see what from Borkus did in the last three derbies at the end of last season. He pressed high. He just went long from the back. So to kind of get away from Celtic's pressure and then not letting them play out of of their own half. Because I think once Celtic is in the opposition, it's often really tough to beat. All right, okay. 
especially if you're not sitting with 11 men behind the ball like completely. And they want to try and counter-press you as well against better teams to try and win the ball. But if you go long, you can kind of set off for that. So I, t- I, I, I really can't see this famous last word, Michael Beale giving Ange a much tougher job than he faced on the front broadcast at the end of last season. That's good to hear. That's yeah, to hear. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I mean, obviously we're talking about a situation where it's we're coming at a transfer window, so it could be a very different team. We're f- I mean, it wouldn't be a different team we're facing by the Derby because it, I can't imagine they'll sign embedded in many players by then. But going forward, it could be a very different team from what we, we see at the moment. I don't know where they're going to get that money from, uh, but let's be positive. <laughs> Not for them. Let's just be positive in general. So let's let's go, Mr. Worldwide. We where do you want to start? The off the field aspects of the World Cup or the on the field? Um, but let's let's start off, I guess, because we talked a lot about it last time. So there's always a few, you know, things move in a new cycle, like a World Cup news cycle. Things move really quickly, so I don't think we have to like jump into everything that's happened because I'm sure more will happen soon as well. But I think there's been a few things happening there, like. Even after what we talked about last time, it's kind of come out, and some of the good and some are just still really, really pathetic, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we've got so Germany finally came out of their shells and had the kind of hand over mouth gesture and then get pumped by Japan, which then led Rob Page to talking about maybe if they'd focused on the game, they wouldn't have got pumped, despite the fact that Germany missed about 40 million chances. Uh, we had the Wembley arch going rainbow colour. We had tonight actually in the game. I don't know if you saw it. Just the game with Portugal and Uruguay. The the game was held up because someone ran on with a, a, a rainbow flag, so that was good to see. And we had the Mark Bullingham LGBT episodes. Overall, though, I feel as if this World Cup is getting a bit normalised. I don't know what you what you think about that. It's as if everything's stopping now in the actual Qatar. Like we're obviously. For me, the Wembley arts going rainbow colour, I don't give a fuck about that. I mean, I think that's, that's, it's almost like uh, dog whistling at this stage. It's, it's not important. It's not doing anything. It's, 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 it's kind of like, it's trying to get free woke points as far as I can see. Like, I don't think do something real. Don't, don't just light your, your arch up. Uh, I don't know what you feel, feel about that and, and the, the page Billingham things in general. What do, what do you think? At least Germany. I mean, we had a bit discussion last time whether those federations should still have, you know, gone through with with the protest. And obviously, Mark Billingham, who's the CEO of, of, of the FA, kind of said, "Oh well, if what we had arranged, FIFA came five people." Probably all wearing nice suits as well. It sounded mm. like it, like the mob showing up saying, oh, you know, it gave us 10 minutes before we left for the game. And they said, oh, you know, you at least get a booking and the player will be disciplined other than that as well. And you go. and the, But there was no, like, I think it was, um, you know, the, there was somebody said, I think it was one of the athletic editors said, well, there, there was not even a mention of the word LGBT plus. From him, there was no kind of like apologies. Of, like, we know we let you down and stuff like that. It was just kind of like, ah, what can you do? You know, you wanted to wear the armband, but and so on. And th- there was never really a. a, a there's always a, was never even a consideration of say like 
standing up to FIFA and saying, okay, then we're, we're going to test this. We're going to see what you're going to do. Because I think if England, especially England and Germany, like the big countries, the big football nations, if they'd done that, you really think FIFA would have punished them, mm. that player? And it's kind of go, but you saw the resolve and you saw the, you saw the real resolve and you saw the real, I guess, really the real support England and Germany. Well, let's start with England first has for this, but it just, essentially, they still just caved. And I think Ian Wright said it really well just after us. And he said, there's, there is no protest without risk. Like you, you won love our band. It's not a protest if it's, but completely sanctioned. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not. So um, they didn't wear it and they have to go. And I do wonder, it's like obviously Germany went down the same way. But I, the difference where I think you see it, and you'll be able, probably be able to tell me more about how what's happened in Germany, what the mood is in Germany. But for me, from the outside, you go, the team goes out, you know, some of them are wearing, you know, the, some of the rainbow colors on their boots. They specifically take the team photo holding their mouth and it's like for me I, I'd still rather you go out and, and wear the armband and take take whatever people tried to put you but at least it seemed like there was an acknowledgement maybe especially inside the squad that they were not happy with this and they were at least doing something whereas England just throw their hands up and go oh well like it's, it's millions of thousands of miles away Wembley. Oh, we'll let open rainbow colors. I hope that I hope that makes up for it. So, and then I'll let you come in on, on the Germany point, but just on, on the Wales. Like, so the Wales coach essentially said, "Oh, I want my players to focus fully on playing games of football and winning games." And it's how do you stop that? You know, you go fuck off, mate. You, you maybe would have said then I would have any and just but. Okay, so it's, it's a football manager platitude. But then it goes on and says, I'm sure Germany, now in hindsight, will probably be of the same message. And you go, like I said last week, fuck off. Fuck you. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it, it's such, like, you can almost accept football players and managers being completely, trying to be completely neutral and not just saying the platitudes and not. But see, when you go into, uh, you know, you know when you obviously tip over to the other side, and you think this isn't, you know, we thought this wasn't really important to you anyway, as a footballer and a coach, and you have to. But you're really, really showing that you don't really care when you say that, like, like that had anything. Would is is even if it had an impact on the German team, like good on them because at least then they're, you know, they've had a reaction to it, they have an emotion to it, and they have. It seems like they actually matter to them. Look, the obvious example there is, is Iranian players who do not sing the national anthem, and then you know, on their obviously distressed, they, they have to mumble the, the second one. And you say, like, is that affecting Iran? Yeah, obviously it's affecting Iran, but how can it not affect you? Like, how, how, what do you want? To, do you want your footballers to be robots and completely switch that stuff up and not be affected by it? Mm. If the only thing you care about is is just winning football games no matter in the contest maybe but I, I have a lot more respect for if I don't think German players would much affect Iran but see if it affected German players if as it affected Iranian players I have a lot more respect for them <laughs> if you said oh it didn't affect me at all because you know that's 
it, it comes back to this thing about she's seen it a lot like oh it's just you know you just have to respect the culture and a lot of people still i think deep down see lgbt as uh, you know it's modern times we've moved on that's the way this in western culture you know it's it's yeah it's it's fine you know my my friend and the neighbor is gay it's okay mm. they don't see it as a, as a that you a fundamental human right that you should be able to love whoever you want and be together with who you want without getting killed for it mm-hmm. and, I, and i think people just see it as a culture just says so so much about about them i think for for someone like rob page i think it comes across his kind of league background as well because when you think about the bundesliga Winning is not the be-all and end-all of German football. You know, they want to have some kind of, like, um, ethical consideration. That's why they have the ownership model that they have. That's why they have Bayern fans, uh, every single um, AGM, uh, demonstrate against the Qatari sponsorship. You know, they're not as interested. In the English Premiership, it is so much more about the the winning being the kind of 100% of, of... and that's probably where Rob Page is coming from. This idea that winning is absolutely everything, and and the, the caring about anything else is just should be disregarded until the football is finished. And yeah, it's it's horrible. It's it's as Ian Wright just as you said, he put it absolutely perfectly. I mean, it's and it's the thing we spoke about with the the the, the toilet rolls, the, the the tennis balls that you need to disrupt if you're going to demonstrate. And it's it's. As you say, we see it to, to a large degree with with the Green Brigade as well, and, and those kind of protests that it, it should. It's so often it comes up straight away. Oh, it shouldn't affect the football. You shouldn't interrupt the football, or you should you should do it in a polite way. And you can draw that parallel to, you know, stop the oil, and mm-hmm. and, and, and and all those organizations saying, oh no, it's, ah, you're just making more enemies. Is that? But like, I mean. To take it all the way back to the suffragettes, right? Did you think you know, they interrupted sporting events to a degree where they threw themselves in front of horses and they were arrested and they, you know, they're seen as, you know, polite society was not at all happy with them. But that was proper protest and they, they achieved that. And I don't think you achieve, you know, it was talked about oh, no protest without risk. Oh, but the risk would have been minimal. And you look at somebody like Rob Page, like it's, it's even if you got Wales to the last 16 of the World Cup, which is not. And but had he led a team that said, no, we, we're we going to do a proper protest at a risk. And you, who do you think, what do you think they would have been most remembered for? And doing that standing up for LBGT community ahead of FIFA. And, potentially creating an iconic moment or they scrape through to the last 16 ahead of, you know, the U S and Iran, like really, you yeah. know, you know, overall, but I think it's, maybe it's just now reminding us of maybe it's just in the end, they don't really care about LGBT plus rights. Um, if it comes at any sort of personal detriment. I think it, it would have made the biggest impact from a team like Wales because of the fact that they haven't been there for so long. That's why I would have loved it for Scotland. This would have been my absolute dream, Scotland qualify and then say they're not going to go because of... Uh, oh, Scot- Scotland would have done exactly the same as Wales. I don't uh, they, would have, yeah, so. they, they would have, but that, that's the kind of protest that has the biggest impact. Some A team like Scotland that's not been there for so long saying, look, we, we want to come to a World Cup, but we're not going to get that World Cup. 
or a team like a team that could genuinely win it, like a Brazil or a Germany or or France or something. I, I, I do just hope that if Celtic go to like Dubai or even Qatar for the training camp again, I think it's, we should have that discussion again. Celtic shouldn't be going because of this. Yeah, it's as easy as that, and it's that's if people want to go on holiday there, I think that's. Yeah, you know, that's something different. You know, I've talked about where we've been on holiday before as well. But Celtic as a club, if you willingly go there, not for a game, like you're not obliged to go there, like you're not playing. Maybe you will be playing the Champions League there soon. Who knows? But you don't have to. But you are. So I, 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 I think if, if we're here next year at the same time, and Celtic's gone, oh, we're going to go back to Dubai. We've got such good memories. It's like, I, I again. A lot of fans are going to say, "Oh, you know, it's, it's good for the sporting thing," but they absolutely should. And I think it's it's the same thing. But I mean, the the, the best thing about it was that Wales were able to fully concentrate on the match, yes, uh, and get pumped two 0 off of Iran. So that's, I mean, I think that's the best the best ending to that little, that little episode. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, I'm honestly pleased Germany got the result yesterday against Spain. Obviously, like you want Japan to go through as well to, to a certain degree, but. See if it's Germany, which I think it will be now. You know. Good on them, you know. Yeah, and I hope I hope that's not the end of the protesting as well. Yeah. And but the, the Wembley Arch just feels, you know, like if you see a, a fight at a pub and the guy gets taken away and he's like, "Hold me back, hold me back," and then <laughs> later on he's like, "I would have punched him in the face." That's a, that's the Wembley Arch to me. It's a lot of shit. <laughs> but let's get into the actual football. But, but was, talking about, um, I, I don't know why it jumped in my head. It's I was going to pronounce this. Um, he's, he's a baseball guy. Is it is a jump boy, and so you're a baseball fan. You must go this guy, and he's he's it's essentially just fan media, but he has these kind of like if if a brawl happens in baseball, he has this ten minute breakdown of it, and he's like the guy's so funny, but <laughs> it didn't have a brawl. It's uh, somehow we will link it, but it's it's just he's had these specific brawl breakdowns, and he freezes the images, and he goes like he does the narrator and, and the voiceover, and it's just the most hilarious things. But because he had one yesterday, and it's about essentially <laughs> two baseball things going, and half the team was just going, "Hold me back, hold me back, hold me back," and it's just the funniest thing. Just I, 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 I thought you appreciate that because you like a baseball fan. I do, I do. I would like to see like um, a super cut between like atrocities happening in Qatar, and then just a still image of the the rainbow arch at Wembley, just going back and forth. A real fight. So, since we recorded, there's been some pretty kind of uh, big movements and and groups. Obviously, we had the Qatar losing to Ecuador, and then they lost also to Senegal. So they're sitting with zero points, one goal. That's, that's a shame. against that. But also in that group, we had uh, Netherlands and uh, Ecuador. Uh, did Ecuador surprise you? Um, no, I mean. It's... This is the point where I have to, you know, fake uh, into my knowledge of all the squads. But no, it's, it's always for uh, Ecuador is one of the. Yeah, well, I have to say it. They've never been like one of the glamorous names in South America because always you got Argentina, Brazil. But below that, I feel like the ones like the names are always like Colombia, Chile, Uruguay, and Ecuador. Even even Peru, I think it's it's probably more like glamorous in a way, just because of the kids. And Ecuador is always kind of like being there, um, but they're never like rated. But they always come with, you know. I think lots of American teams 
sometimes you get like the best teams are like the most vibey in, in South America. I think mm. Brazil, Argentina, whereas these teams like Chile, like you know, especially on the Bielsa, but uh, I think Colombia, Chile, sometimes Uruguay, Ecuador, it always comes with a you know coherent plan and, and, and a structure. And I think again, Ecuador has been one of those teams you always go. And it's always a shame that they're in this in a group at Senegal because I think Senegal is the same. I think Senegal's always been one of the best. I remember this last World Cup as well, like a very coherent tactical system and executed really well. So it's a shame those two teams are together. I do hope Senegal make it because I think the kind of team that could go really far if they get out of the groups is just because they have that you know tactical outlook that kind of. They're more organized um, a, a team um, compared to all of them. So I don't even want to leave me and take whatever, but to be honest, I hope Senegal go through. <laughs> how, how disappointing is it that Bayern Munich legend uh, Sadio Mane is not at the tournament? I was hoping like, it, it would kind of, okay, we don't have a talisman. You, you have to concentrate even more on the team. But yeah, it's a shame because I think, as you know, he's he's an incredible team player. You know, he's even. He was so integral to that Liverpool system, not because he was, you know, he's an extraordinary player, but he was a really, really good player within a really, really good system. And I think he would have been there as well. So it's it's a shame. Maybe, maybe he shouldn't have left Liverpool. Maybe that's mm. maybe he should just played for free for a bit. And then, uh, I don't that. agree with that. I so... didn't even put the fact that um, Liverpool's, um, you know, herald transfer data driven. Uh, project seems to be on the on the rails a little bit, um, but that's for another episode because that was some news coming out that it's, it's not good. That club is getting club is getting a bit more involved in recruitments and stuff like that, and that uh, never ends well. So, Who, who's the German Aaron Moy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll see this window, won't we? So, yeah. Yeah. Group B, we have Boo England. Boo Iran, mm. Boo Wales. Do, 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 we, do we boo Iran? I don't know. Because that, that's a tough one. Because <laughs> the, the players obviously. We, I, we I don't think... boo the players, we boo the regime. We do. Well, yes, that, that, that is true. Because um, I, I, the Iran one is funny because you know, Carlos Kiros' comments were like, oh, atrocious in terms of the fans there. But the fans there is obviously showing, is using this team, I think, uh, trying to make. Have the most assumable happiness in process. I think even the, the Iran players like kind of mumbling the national anthem it was heartbreaking, and it might made them almost more a symbol for me in terms mm-hmm. of you know the 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 show that they have to do this and then to come and then beat Wales after that as well it was extraordinary. So, I mean, I think they got. I mean, that's some game coming up against the USA as well, um, and uh, I, I think they can do it. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd I'd rather Iran go through than the USA. To be honest, the US team had the hipsters all a quiver, especially their their goalkeeper who was doing man more Neuer type things. What did you make of the America, US versus England? Yeah, I thought it was you know pretty. I think it, we talked about it like on beyond the scoreboard as well because it was played just before. It's quite interesting tactic. I think US and Canada are like the most tactically organized teams and especially off the ball they're doing a lot of they were doing a lot of good stuff it wasn't quite enough for Canada but I think they played well I think the USA as well is you can kind of 
the thing with USA is like they need to beat Iran. Which I don't know if they have it in them to be honest, because I think again they maybe a bit like Rangers that you know they're better without the ball, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how they win. So the Rangers of the World Cup, USA. I'm sure our US listeners would be happy to hear that. That's still um, the two matches ta- they do that tactically, obviously. So. Though I'm I, I'm I'm aware that the two Ed, the two Eddie the two Mats and Eddie don't actually like the US national team, so it's a complicated thing for them as well. They were a bit English like that. Maybe they like to be compared to the English like that instead, because a lot of English people do not like the English national team. Well, the English th- people I am friends with. Anyway, so. Do you think the two Mats and Eddies like the English national team? Do you think they'll like that? Yeah, let's say that. Let's, let's go with that. Let's go with that. So my, my prediction for this is the worst of all worlds, Iran and the US draw. Wales beat England, but Wales and England go through anyway. That that would be sad. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can say a lot of things about the US, England and Iran, but Wales, bloody hell, you know, so... Yeah. I love how Wales have just become, gone from being a complete irrelevance in any world matter to being like the boo boys of this World Cup just because of rock page. I, I, I blame the rugby. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, Group C, we have Poland on top uh, following their fantastic victory over <laughs> Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and we have Argentina and Saudi on three points and Mexico basically out, I would say, at this stage. Yeah. I mean, they've got they've got Saudi Arabia next, so they could get up to four points with a win. We'll see. I mean, they would need to they would need to win by basically five goals <laughs> uh, if if Argentina beat Poland. So it's it's pretty complicated for Mexico. What about Argentina? Heavy, not heavy favourites, but heavy second favourites going into this tournament. Not really set the hell on fire so far. I think with Argentina, they're so emotional. You know, I think you get a real sense of, for better or worse, like that whole team is just built around this being Messi's last chance. And I think, but it's 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 a team I feel that where Messi is 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 a proper leader. You know, there's there's really interesting like behind the footage from the Cup America last year in terms of the leader he was there, like the speech he has before the final against Brazil uh, as well. And you feel that as a team that once sees Messi as a true leader and wants him to win this, whereas Portugal, I don't think, you know, they obviously want to win, but they can give a shit about Ronaldo more about him mm-hmm. later. Uh, <laughs> so I think this, it's a really emotional team and, and they're I think because of their for want of a, a more original word, they're very vibesy at the moment. So, but in, in one sense, it's it appeals to the nostalgia and, and the roman the romantic view I've always had of the World Cup. That sometimes you just need a player like Messi to just drag a team to the final by by sheer will and by sheer emotion, even though they're like you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to go that far against really proper teams. So. If he can somehow do that and just get them through by one nils and through the whole tournament, I think at least for him, I think that'd be like a really like I would love to see that one last time to to have that. Uh, I mean, it's probably another pod, but that whole debate about who's the greatest footballer ever, who's which I think is just it becomes so tiresome because Lionel Messi is obviously the best footballer ever. Like I, I think. The best footballer ever will usually be within the last 10, 15 years because 
that is simply how football moves. Mm. Like I think, so for me, Messi is the best player, but I also think where I, where how I structure this in my head, where I think in general is, is a better way of looking at the best isn't the same as the greatest. Mm. So the greatest is a lot more based on moments, on specific tournaments, or specific goals, on specific, you know, character. And that's why you can do, you know, Pele and Maradona, and I guess in some way Cruyff as well, even though just one of them is one. Uh, like Cruyff didn't win a World Cup. But even though, yes, a part of it is, is, is winning the World Cup. And I think to be the greatest you you probably need a moment like that for me if you want to go up in the upper echelons of of, of greatness. As I think for me, best is, is different to great. Um, I think the best Leon Messi is the best player there has ever been. I don't think there's not really a doubt for me about that. Whereas I think probably Maradona is still the greatest in terms of just his 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 legacy and his his story. And, and that's come from me for somebody who when I was growing up didn't really have didn't really like Maradona much. But I've I've kind of grown to love like the history of him so much more over the last you know ten twenty years. Whereas mm-hmm. I now was whereas I was like more like a, a Pele kind of guy. That's you know Maradona is just. Um, I still think you know if you want to say he's the greatest because of that, and maybe he'll always be the greatest because for my generation. But yeah, I'd love to see Messi in it to build this. I really would. I think you've also got the you've got the the weight of actually caring about international football. Whereas yes. for me, club football was top, so Messi's better than Maradona. <laughs> but I get, I get the whole aspect of dragging a team through. But like Messi did that with Barcelona towards the end, I guess. But yeah, yeah. No, I think he has so many moments as well. It's just, and it's not. I'm not saying a definitive thing, but I think it's just a nice way of. I think for me, showing that the best isn't the same as the greatest. Mm-hmm. You know, so the best of the tournaments so far appear to be in Group D, and that is uh, France, which forget so Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so. it's kind of annoying because I, I France was seemed to be falling apart in the Nations League beforehand. So I think everyone got their hopes up that there could be an upset this this time around. Uh, they're sitting six points, they blew Australia away and they dismantled Denmark, who were sitting further and further back in that game. I thought they were going to end up in the stand. Uh, they look pretty impressive, uh, Christian, and that's even without Benzema in the team at the moment. Yeah, as, first, I, I didn't see the France-Australia game. Um, seems like I missed a treat. And, but I think what's kind of characterised France a lot is that they're kind of cheating, because they've got so many good players in every position. And I don't really rate the Shams at all as a manager. And I think I, I do kind of get a feeling that they're not going to win it this year. And I think there's just something about that team that, you know, look at Spain, I think even look at uh, Brazil, even Germany. I think, I think Netherlands weirdly can be really gnarly if you come up against them as well. So, um, and it's weird because sometimes I've had a real love for, for French teams, like 98, obviously, 2006. You know, I wanted them to win, but I don't know. There's something about this team, be it the Champs or be it Hugo Lloris now, maybe. I don't know, but it's just, it's not for me. And I think they'll be up there or not, but, it's, you know, I'd, to be honest, I'd rather they not win it. With so. international tournaments, I have won. Uh, one hope and one hope only that there'll be teams that can possibly beat England, and I think France is one of those. So that's, that's a fair point. Let's um, let's, let's, let's look. 
that is the most important thing, to be honest. As long yeah. as they don't win, you know, happy for who glories to, to, to lift the trophy again if it means England don't win it. In, in Group E, I think everyone's excited by Spain just like birthing a new NES than Xavi and, and Gavi and Pedro. Um, they seem a very exciting team. They, they do seem to lack that kind of um, cutting edge up front despite the Costa Rica game uh, against Germany. They just didn't seem to be, they didn't seem to have that kind of final step. But Germany did do well to kind of like give up their pride and become like a counter, a counter attacking force like they used to be in the olden days. Japan, on the other hand, they seem to have forgotten that there might be one game in the tournament where they have to kind of create and just brought a whole squad of counter-attacking footballers, which wasn't great when you're playing Costa Rica. Uh, what do you make of... This is one of the most intriguing groups, Group E. It's looking like Germany will probably beat Costa Rica and Japan will probably lose to Spain and the two big teams will go through. But Germany, Costa Rica could be possible banana skin given how uh, Costa Rica did against Japan. What, what do you make? What, what do you think is going to happen here? And what do you think of the Spain so far? I, I think Germany will go through. Uh, I think they will. I mean, I'll just, I just said there, I, I think they are. Team wise, I think you saw against Spain. I think you saw it against Japan to some degree as well. They. Maybe they don't have you know, the stars, uh, you know, the biggest stars <laughs> uh, as they had. You know, you've, you know, obviously you know German football better than myself. But I think when you have someone like, um, <laughs> but it's basically more like, you know, not a journeyman, and <laughs> in, in your man Fulkrug, it's probably not how I pronounce it. But I would it, say journeyman. Yeah, he played for yeah. FC Nuremberg about four years ago, so I would say a journeyman. So. <laughs> Uh, but that is, uh, in a way, it's you know, it's kind of the German teams I grew up with, uh, where they didn't even have big stars, but they're just about the system. So I think Germany will get through. I think they go far. I think with Spain, it's it's an interesting. Like people say, oh, you know, the, the Spanish team has always been, I guess, accused of not having a number nine, essentially a, a, a big forward to just overall the goals, and it's just like discussion. That's always comes up, but I think, and you know, Morata comes on and he, he scores goals. But I, I think I, I'm not looking, I'm not watching enough games at all or enough times to say anything clever tactically. To too, too much about the World Cup, but I'll leave that to you know, the good friend of the pond, good friend of the pond, John McKenzie. Which I'm probably going to mention every week here, you know. So he does the TFO uh, live stream after every night. You know, I think it's on every other night. But he had a really interesting thread out on what happened to Spain after Morata comes on. Uh, you know, um, and obviously he comes on, he gets the goal. But as kind of John explains, that's having a, a number nine like Morata comes. Uh, it's, it's a trade off here between okay, you have a fiscal pressing up nine, but the um, the pressing changes within that, and how they kind of have shunky that like the, the forward press for Spain became after that when he come on because he couldn't do the same as uh, you know Asensio did in, in that you know same role, and that Germany were much more able to play through Germany just by having Morata there as as you know as the big striker up top because he can't he he wasn't doing the same 
pressing things, the triggers, you know, the running, and it allowed German to come higher up the pitch because of that. And it's as you said, it's you know, it's, you know I don't know if you heard me mention this phrase before Rafa Benitez blanket you know if you put somebody like a big number nine up who's okay he's if you want to call more affected up front or he has a certain strengths that's fine you, you pull the blanket up but then your feet you know the defensively will suffer for that so that's an interesting balance in what you do in tournament play do you if just you, yeah if you if you could describe what happened with Spain and Marata in an analogy that Celtic fans would understand what what would that be <laughs> I don't know, Graham. Well, I just got a feeling you're leading me into this. Are, are you saying that Morata is essentially uh, Jake Marcus? Is, is that what you're saying here? Somebody no, I, was, I was thinking of Bratback, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe Bratback is, is, you know, obviously completely different. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's probably the Celtic parallel. You know, you, you have somebody like Gigi, who, bless him, Want to have a great front press, and he is, he's, you know, he's not has the, the stamina to make all those runs, the pressing ones he does one, and then he has a rebreather. But that's we, we all know that it's not it's, you can like it's no point in even criticizing for because his strength is in the penalty box, right? That that is we want. He's not strength. It's not to do that sort of stuff. So, so that's the sacrifice that Ange has to consider, you know. Um, and that you know, I've I've been critical of Kyogo's press as well, but you know he's he, he will bring you more in terms of the pressing side. So then you have to dash after the side. What do you gain by playing Gigi? That you then is that worth it between what you lose defensively and you know and domestically? It's probably usually fine, you know, mostly fine mm. in Europe, like. It, it, it wasn't much help in the pressing, you know. But that's so. So that is, it's it's kind of similar with Murata as well. I think I think that's why he doesn't start. You mm. know, it's especially if you're up against a team like Germany, a bit further in the position, maybe Brazil in the final, you know, France before that. You know, you wouldn't start him because I think if you do that, you probably lose too much. You probably give up too much in terms of and this kind of tournament hey, you need to kind of in a way you have to try to make sure that all those kind of variables and the randomness is, is as little as possible because one mistake will you know it's not like a league season mm. where you'll gain that you know one so you almost in a way play it safe but you, you play it system wise you, you need to make sure the team is, is, is functioning in a structured the right way and everybody's doing their their thing for as long as possible, and then if you need a goal, like Spain, you know, put Morata only gets a goal, but then also the other side of that, your your defensiveness is maybe not as good, uh, especially when you know players are tiring and so on. So it's that balance you have to make as as a manager, and when you when you take one risk and when you take the other. And when you think about that game uh, last night, if that if that had been a knockout game, Germany end up with the higher XG. Germany should have won the game for Leroy Sani at the end. I mean, it's always kind and, of even just getting a light equalizer. Who, who do you kind of fancy going yeah. into extra time? Then mm-hmm. so I do love how world football has just seen this as like a narrative that the the kind of German Rocky has been awoken now, and they're like, they want some kind of rage to the final. I, I don't know if that will happen, but I would li- I would like to see it. That famous match in the uh, Rocky Tree when he goes up against the nation of Costa Rica. Exactly. Exactly. 
So the next group is quite intriguing as well. And basically, Belgium are out in their arse unless they can beat Croatia. Even if they draw with Croatia, Morocco just need one point against Canada to 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 knock Belgium out. The the golden generation has gone and rusted. I don't know if gold rusts. Rust, rust never sleeps. I know that. But what, what do you make of this group? Anything stood out to you? It, it is, yeah, I think that Belgian team is just it's too old. Really, it's not. It's not by far fast enough. Or you know, there's. You know, I think it was a friend Jack in the group chat who said kind of they've kind of wasted that generation on a possession-based manager like Martinez, with us maybe they should have, you know, done a completely different strategy. You know, there's so many big players, you know, focus a lot on set pieces, focus on being narrow, contra-attacking, because you know, they've always had this, you know, pace up front and, and, and so on before. So you've kind of, maybe it's a case of just picking the wrong manager and the wrong style for that generation. And you know, I think Kevin De Bruyne is just like, no, we're not going to win this. And this is, so, so yeah, I mean, it's because you always fancied Belgium as in front of you, like tournaments before, to, to be that opposite and to actually go and win something. But they've never really produced, I think, in terms of, you know, and I think you could maybe draw a parallel to, to, to England a few years ago, like maybe early 2000s, when they had a lot of really, really good players. But again, I don't think they ever found a, a style, luckily, that, that suited them, that to bring them far. And I think it's the same with same with Belgium. We're comparing a lot of teams to, to England today. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I, again, I, I think Morocco is it's a, it's a fun team. And I'd I love to go through. And, and I think Croatia is kind of like... You can maybe maybe they are on slightly the same curve as Belgium, but they're not quite there yet. And again, with Modric, you know, it's probably the nostalgia in me and the romanticism in me. But I'd, I'd love to see him take Croatia far as well. I'd like to see Josip Radovic go far in the World Cup as well. To be honest, um, I maybe should check that. On top of my head, what's the best kind of? I, I know you had your man for, for the Netherlands. You went to the World Cup final and played there. Uh, it was alone, but yeah, how far has like? An established Celtic player was the furthest ever gone in the World Cup. It can't be that far. That's uh, I don't know. Actually, it can't. It can't be. I don't think there's been many in modern times. Anyway, I can't. I can't imagine many. It's Braithwaite, wasn't it? He went to, uh, to Braithwaite, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was technically not. He was on loan that season. He was technically wasn't a Celtic player yeah. anymore. He hit the bar at Pitodre. That was his, <laughs> that was his highlight. In Group G, as we move swiftly on, Brazil have booked their place in the next round of 16 by narrowly beating Switzerland in a pretty joyous game where not much was created by either team. I think Brazil missing Neymar quite a bit. They're not, I mean, they're probably not hitting the heights we expected, but as Germany have proven in the past, ease into this tournament, get through the group station, then start building from there. There's no point in blasting goals in when you're getting through, when you're qualifying anyway. Uh, Serbia Serbia and Denmark are two teams that I was kind of thinking about as dark horses I put a wee tenor on Serbia yeah, yeah and they were three went up today against Cameroon but they ended up drawing three each and now that game is pretty much open Switzerland and Serbia play each other next um, which if either team wins they probably go through well so, so many things to first of all Cameroon's on one point and Brazil's on six and Cameroon technically, well, they need to beat Brazil to have a chance to go through. 
Graham Mackay, have you? Do you think such a scenario has ever come up before in the World Cup? Yeah. Well, Brazil has got six points. The other teams got one. They need to beat Brazil in the last group stage game. Any anything spring to mind? It's it's never going to happen, Christian. It's never going to happen. Let me t- tell you about a little guy called Kepil Rechtal. Sounds I, like I, a procedure that you get. He and another the other goal scorer from over that night was probably heard of him. Twitter Andre Flo, a famous night in my sight where Liverpool beat Liverpool. Liverpool that's a Freudian slip. Uh, we're Norway. Uh, beat Brazil 2-1 uh, to go through on well everybody thought it was on behalf of uh, over Scotland but <laughs> Scotland completely blew it against Morocco um, so yeah so I, I think Cameroon again can, can invoke the spirit of, of Marseille and, uh, and go through but I mean it's, I think first of all in Brazil that's two really tough games by the way Serbia and Switzerland they're mm. as you say they're, they're good teams and the fact that they've XG'd them, I think they have a, their goal difference is three, but the XG difference is three as well, uh, pretty much. And I think, you know, that's really, really two tough group stage games to start with, tougher than I think any other, other big teams have had. Um, so I, I think they've done really well and they're true after it. So, I, I, you know, I still see them as, I, I've been, you know, Silently impressed with them, uh, Brazil for having just seen out those games and, and winning them quite comprehensively. And then Serbia, Switzerland is going to be tasty, right? Because I don't know if you saw the you know the dressing room, Serbia's dressing room. Um, after the first game, there's a picture of Kosovo, I think, with the Serbian flag on it saying mm. no surrender, um, which, um, you know, uh, Shakiri and Chaka at Switzerland, obviously, because because of descent, will uh, you know, he's you know, has done the occasional eagle celebration before. Um, <laughs> just what this, as Karen Dillon said, just what this World Cup needed some more geopolitical uh, um, vibes thrown in. So, so I'm looking forward to that one because I think that would be uh, exciting. <laughs> when I was in Belgrade last year for the the Rangers match, yeah, I was going to say uh, that's that's where you went, wasn't it? The first thing I saw come out of the airport was graffiti on an overpass that said Kosovo is Serbia. So, uh, it, it, you know, time for a t-shirt slogan, uh, I think, uh, from one of the Switzerland lads. So, who's, who's uh, 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 this is a genuine open question. Who's who's the bad guys again in the Balkan? I know I'm completely ignorant, but it's Serbia isn't the greatest, are they? I think it's regard. Serbia. I it think is. It's Serbia. I mean, I, I know the actual wars, they, they weren't great. Right, so it's still, but you know, okay. Yeah, That's my geopolitical insight. So, so if, I, I'm just looking. I think if Germany go through as runners up, they will play the winner of Croatia or and Morocco. So I think there's a, there's a wee path. Damn it, There's a wee there's a wee build that I can see happening here. So, but that I mean, we'll come back to that next week and talk more about the football and whatever bullshit that has happened off the but, field as well. But what to say as well, it just. Brazil, I guess. I, I was struggling. Like Max is a big Brazil fan. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he wants Traitor. them to win. <laughs> but and I was like struggling in terms of um, Neymar specifically with his like uh, it's the whole thing about you know supporting Bolsonaro, and then even after he's lost, you know, say like oh he's got to dedicate his first goal of the World Cup to him. And it's like, I mean, you know, above all. <laughs> 
at times because Neymar has got a lot of shit over the years. Some of them undeserved. Some of them did absolutely deserve. So I kind of go like, okay, I'm not going to be too down on him. But see, when he started that stuff with Bolsonaro, and I know it's a lot of the other you know, players in that team who's not have a good record for it. So I was like, oh, Neymar. But so it was, it was actually really into everything we talked about last time as well that, you know, which I listen. I can't, I can't pronounce that properly. I, I always try and then it goes, but regardless, <laughs> you know, I think with him, essentially, and I, I was kind of aware of his stance, but like, especially after it came through, like, he is by far like the most progressive members of that team, you know, and it's, he's, he's, Actually, been someone who's spoken out on you know there's a really good Guardian article about you know about the poverty, about the police state, you know, gender violence, LBGT rights, and also like the whole like environment destruction of of Brazil. So, and there's always been this case that the Brazil national team has been a unifier, and under Bolsonaro and some of the players like Neymar, it's just you know I think a lot of people in Brazil of some people say progressive people say. You know, the good guys have just fallen out of love with the team because it's been seen as, you know, an extension of Bolsonaro's regime and then Neymar being the, the dick he is, obviously. So to have someone like that coming up as the main striker, as, you know, scoring two goals and actually having it just being a decent guy for once and not mm. a complete vacuum of a human like Neymar, um, you know, it's it was nice. It's a nice story, and I think that's you know. I hope he goes on to have a really good tournament, and you know, that I can actually, you know, be a symbol of, of something quite good. It's surprising for me that um, someone who has Norwegian and Scottish national teams to <laughs> cheer for that he's chosen Brazil. I mean, I don't get it. I, I don't know if you noticed that none of those teams are actually in, but he, he is saying he's he's going to make Scotland win the World Cup. So okay, there you go. As so, a player. No, no. It's always it's, it's a big Scotland and Norway fan. It's just but you know, he's uh it's it, it somehow ended up having Thibaut Courtois as his favourite player as well. So I, I so Scotland and Norway is gonna be a fan of wild salmon. That's what it's gonna be a fan of. We missed out the last group, which is a pretty dull group anyway, but it's Portugal have qualified already. Ghana in the driving seat to get the second place. in fact it was a great game with Ghana and Korea today. Uh, Uruguay I mean, looks as if they could be out in their arse. Also, very tasty. Ghana, Uruguay in the same one. It was just such, I mean, I, I think if Uruguay wins that, they're true. And I, I, I think, you know, it's just that, you know, one of the iconic World Cup matches from eight years ago. It's, it's, it's eight. I haven't, it hasn't been 12. It is eight, isn't it? <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, Suarez's handball and entry time. And, and Ghana missing that penalty and then Uruguay going through. So it's, it's always like a, a huge matchup just in that sense. And I'm sure Luis Suarez will be calm, collected about it. Uh, no, incident free. Uh, One to five days. odds he bites someone in the <laughs> match. He might even go further this time. Who knows? <laughs> so. Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to have to call it there because I can hear Gao's voice in my head. Despite him not being on the call, I can still hear his voice in my head telling us to wrap this up. Gals yeah, essentially it, implanted himself in your brain. That's, that's quite hot. So, it's, yeah. Christian, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy your week, and I'll catch up with you this time next week.
it's it's always a pleasure, Graham. I'm, I'm so glad you, you you've stuck around this time. We've, we won a great run, and I can't see anything other than Gal trying to get your agenda again that will stop this uh, great development. So yeah, you don't go anywhere, my friend. You stay right here with me. I'm so. the hottest transfer prospect in the the Senate. Coming up on first day, the transfer committee: Graham McKay, Kieran Devlin, and myself. And we're going to we're going to get them drunk and milk them for <laughs> gossip. Don't tell them that before. <laughs> I've been Graham McKay and we will catch you down the road.